Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction. We were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. This is the fifth and final episode of our five-part series on Dopesick with New York Times writer and best-selling author Beth Macy. In this episode, we'll have an in-depth conversation with Christy Fernandez, who lost her son Jesse, a former high school football star, to a heroin overdose. As we begin, Beth shares an introduction to her book, Dope Sick, and how a mother's request to discover why her son lost his life helped her frame the story. The book begins with me going to interview a twice convicted drug dealer in prison. And as I'm driving to West Virginia to interview him, um, I'm contemplating kind of what set me there. And I've actually been asked by a mother of a 19-year-old uh, who overdosed. Um, I can't. I want you to help me find out why my son Jesse is dead. I don't understand how he ended up dead on someone else's bathroom floor. So that's the question that I set out to answer for the whole book and also on this trip. And so I write, as I'm, this is sort of while I'm driving, if I could retrace the epidemic as it shape-shifted across the spine of the Appalachians, roughly paralleling Interstate 81 as it fanned out from the coal fields of Virginia and crept north up the Shenandoah Valley, I could understand how prescription pill and heroin abuse was allowed to fester, moving quietly and stealthily across this country, cloaked in stigma and shame. Set in three culturally distinct communities that represent the evolution of the epidemic as I reported it, Dopesick begins in the coal fields in the hamlet of St. Charles, Virginia, in the remote westernmost corner of the state, largely with the under introduction of the painkiller OxyContin in 1996. From there, the scourge not only advanced into new territories, but also arrived via a different delivery system as the morphine molecule shifted from OxyContin and other painkillers like Vicodin and Percocet to heroin, the pill's illicit twin, and later, even stronger synthetic analogs. As the epidemic gained strength, it sent out new geographic shoots, moving from predominantly rural areas to urban and suburban settings, though the pattern was never stable or fixed. Heroin landed in the suburbs and cookie-cutter subdivisions near my home in Roanoke in the mid-2000s. But it wasn't widely acknowledged until a prominent jeweler and civic leader, Ginger Mumpower, drove her addicted son to, to the federal prison where he would spend the next five years for his role in a former classmate's overdose death. I covered Spencer's transition from private school student to federal inmate at the same time I witnessed the rise in overdose deaths spread north along I-81 from Roanoke. It infected pristine farm pastures in small northern Shenandoah Valley towns as more users and increasingly vigilant medical and criminal justice systems propelled the addicted onto the urban corridor from New Baltimore to New York. If you live in a city, maybe you've seen the public restroom with a sharps container or witnessed a librarian administer Narcan. While more and more Americans die of drug overdose, it is impossible to not look back at the early days of what we now recognize as an epidemic and wonder what might have been done to slow or stop it. Christy Fernandez's question, she's the mom that asked me to go to the prison, are not her questions alone. 
Until we understand how we reach this place, America will remain a country where getting addicted is far easier than securing treatment. So um, that's, that's my tell the reader how to read my book. I heard the story about this dealer who had landed in town and kind of this not a distressed farm town, like kind of a nice little community. And he had landed to serve out the end of his his um, prison sentence working in a chicken plant called George's Chicken. And um, as the prosecutors told the story, he became the largest drug dealer in Virginia. And, and he started bringing heroin in bulk from Harlem into this small farming community. And almost overnight, according to them, the town went from having a handful of known heroin users to almost hundreds. And, you know, if you talk to Christy, she's got a different take on that, too. I think it's more complicated than that. But it was true that he got this connect and he started bringing it in and they could get it cheaper. It was less dangerous than going to Baltimore. And suddenly the people, this was also happening around the same time that the pills were getting hard to get. The people in the break room at the chicken plant sort of telegraphed that idea to him. If you start selling heroin instead of weed and crack, which you sold before, you, know, you can make a lot more money. And that was what he did. But, um, you know, and he's he's only out of prison like six months before they catch him and they catch him back 83 other people in this large ring. And at the same time, Christy's son, Jesse, um, had made the switch to heroin from pills. And the first time I meet her, she asked me to meet her at Jesse's uh, gravesite where and she's had him buried at the edge of the cemetery right next to the high school and right next to the football field where he had once made the once made the fans roar. You know, and I just thought that was so moving. And she had, you know, all these things about him on the headstone. Number 55 was his football jersey. And, um, you know, in the big, the same font that was in his, that his jersey's number was in. And she asked me just point blank to help her figure out why her only son, who was 19 when he died, never missed a day of work. He worked in construction. He wanted to go to college and become um, like a sports management person or a coach because he loves sports. He was working with his dad that summer. And how was it that he ended up dead on somebody else's bathroom floor with a heroin needle in his arm? Because she didn't understand. She thought it was just pills. And that was something I heard over and over. So I just started kind of peeling layers of the onion, looking into that Ronnie Jones case, you know, the in the chicken plant story, which was nearby, and sort of timing the arrival of bulk heroin into Jesse's switch from pills to heroin. And... Um, you know, interviewing his friends and associates and his family members, sisters, um, and trying to really kind of figure out what happened. And and the police who were involved, the prosecutors, the ATF agent who ended up, you know, arresting Ronnie Jones. Um, what did that look like? How did that play out on the ground? I found some middlemen, some some other dealers in the ring who were themselves addicted, who are now in prison. I found them in various prisons and I interviewed them. I went and interviewed Ronnie and it was sort of all at Christie's request at the beginning of the book, because I realized if I could answer her question, then maybe I could answer like America's, America's question. How was it we got here? And that then sent me back. How, how is it like, until we answer the question of how we get God here, you know, in the worst drug epidemic in the history of our nation, um, America is going to remain a place where it's easier to get addicted than it is to get treatment for addiction. And so I sort of use that Christie's question as a device for writing the book and telling the story and connecting these three disparate communities, which just happen to be sort of um, connected by the heroin highway. As Dope Sick begins, Christy Fernandez is obsessed with the story of her son's swift descent into addiction. 
the missing details that might explain how Jesse went from being a high school football hunk and burly construction worker to a heroin overdose statistic, slumped on someone else's bathroom floor. If she understood the progression of his addiction better, she reasons, maybe she could help other parents protect their kids from stumbling down that same path. Christy Fernandez goes on this journey to learn all she can about the death of her son. And when she, we talked, she began by talking about what we now know is one of the risk factors. Like so many children today, Jesse was diagnosed at a young age with ADHD. There are several studies that now suggest a strong connection between ADHD and struggles with substance abuse. Actually, in preschool, one of the teachers, she said, you know, I'm not a medical professional, but you might want to talk to your doctor. Um, Jesse's having a lot of trouble focusing, and he's a bit of a distraction to the class. And, of course, I talked to the pediatrician, and you know, he was very young at that time, not quite, maybe four. Um, then once he got into elementary school, it became quite evident that he was having a real difficult time sitting still, um, keeping focused. Um, and homework, you know, had become, you know, kind of an issue, uh, just getting him to sit and focus again and um, take care of his studies. So we talked to the doctor and we decided that we would do some testing. And um, they basically told me that he was a textbook case, um, ADHD. And we did decide to medicate him for him at that time, um, to make his life easier, because I know it was very frustrating for him. The dangers of concussions have only recently been revealed. A 2011 Ontario student drug use and health survey revealed students in grades 7 to 12 who had suffered at least one concussion in their lifetime were two to three times more likely to struggle with substance abuse issues than students who had not suffered a concussion. He lived for football but uh, as a result, he suffered from, it was, I think he ended up with five concussions throughout his playing in high school. Um, and, and that was really tough. Um, the last one was particularly bad. And we ended up at a neurologist and she wanted to stop him playing. And he cried and begged and it was very important to him. And she said, I'm going to okay this and let you go back to football. But if you have one more, you're, you're done. You can never play football again. So and I he made it and he kept playing, but yeah, it, it was pretty bad. And each time he was prescribed pain medication, of course, concussions, you know. Christy discovered another red flag, a lot of missing pills. I, I didn't know. I, I was very blind to what these kids were doing with the pain pills. And then, um, My mother had some come up missing. She had a wedding band come up missing. um, And we started to notice things around the house come up missing. And I had some talks with Jesse. And, of course, he would would always deny it. But I could tell there was a change in him. Um, he, He became a different person. As Jesse descended into his addiction, Christy, like many parents, was in a state of denial. I mean, I had found needles in a shirt pocket hanging in a, a shirt hanging in a closet. Of course, they belonged to somebody else. Um, he had been on a job site and they had found needles in the Johnny Blue and they belonged to somebody else. He was holding them for somebody else. And um, he was just tired because he had a couple too many beers. Um, 
I was really, I was more focused on the alcohol. I, I really thought that he was beginning to have a problem with alcohol and he was not of age to be drinking alcohol. I wasn't allowing it. It was happening. Um, but I really thought that was the, the cause of the big change in him. After you noticed that things came up missing, the, real, the rings, cash, pills, you decided to take some measures and lock your door. Yeah, we actually put a lock on my bedroom door. We took a key to open it, and I really felt terrible about that. And I know when he saw it for the first time that he knew that I knew. And, and, you know, we had asked him, but I don't believe he thought that we actually believed he did it. Um, But when he saw that lock, I saw the look on his face, and I could see the guilt, and I think he was embarrassed. I had seen some changes in him, and he had turned 18 and um, on a trial basis was uh, living, you know, a couple nights a week with a friend. Um, he had some issues with drugs, which at, at, the, at the time I did not know that. Uh, it, you know, I guess it doesn't really matter. When their drug dealer was busted, Jesse and his friend did whatever it took to avoid becoming dope sick. Where Christy's son, um, Jesse, was yeah. um, really close to Baltimore, an hour and a half, and he and his friends would would go there um, and bring it back. And it would be a little more expensive, a little more dangerous. You know, you're going into the middle of a big city. You know, they they felt like they had to get it or they would be dope sick uh, in this excruciating withdrawal. A father of another friend came to visit my office and he told me that his son was indeed a heroin addict and that he felt that um, Jesse needed some help as well. And this was all very shocking to me. Next, Christy talks about getting help for Jesse. We did find uh, a facility in Florida that would take Jesse. And I'm thinking it's pain pills, just pain pills. And to say that sounds terrible to come out of my mouth. But at the time, it was, you know, just pain pills and alcohol, of course, Um but at that time, he wasn't admitting to doing heroin either. Not right? at all. Yeah. Not at all. And I was blind to it. Um, he, I don't know how to say this without sounding like I, I, I'm thinking that Jesse wasn't a heroin addict. I, I don't want people to believe that I don't believe that. I know Jesse had a problem. His drug of choice was pain pills. He did use heroin, but it was not his drug of choice. Not that that really makes a difference. But, um, I went home from work half a day that day and he was at home, wasn't expecting me to come home early. And I confronted him. I was sort of a little intervention, just myself and my son. And I said, there's a lot of things going on. I spoke with Dennis's dad. He seems to think that you might need to get some help too. you know, talk to me. He told me that he had an addiction to painkillers and alcohol. And I told him about the rehab facility and that they were willing to take him immediately. Uh, They just needed to speak with him and actually arranged the phone call. He spoke with them, um, decided to go. And he said that he needed to go be with some friends that evening and he was going to leave the next day. And he went out um, and got high on heroin that night. And I know this because while he was in rehab, he told me, the rehab facility had told him, um, you know, this is only going to be covered for heroin 
um, your insurance, if you test positive only for pain pills, it's not going to cover this. You have to test positive for heroin. So basically, he moved into the residential portion of the rehab facility, started his group counseling, individual counseling. We did uh, several times a week, we did a phone call with a counselor over the phone where I had to tell him, you know, what his addiction, how it had affected our family and myself as his mother and, you know, things like that that were really difficult. Got through that program about 90 days, I guess it would have been. And they said that they suggested, you know, a halfway house, which I totally agreed with. And we found one in Asheville, North Carolina, that was absolutely wonderful. And he went there. He arrived in March. And by the beginning of May, he had earned um, a visit home. Timestamping this. This was March of 2013. March of 2013 and May of 2013, early May, he came home for a visit from North Carolina. He flew home. And his very first night home, he went out with some friends and he smoked marijuana. I don't believe he used anything else. I think he had a few beers. Um, He told me he had a reservation to drink beer. I was already aware of that. Um, But he smoked marijuana. I mean, he had experimented with marijuana through the years and whatnot, but he smoked plenty of it, I'm sure. But it wasn't his his thing, but I found out that he smoked it because he knew that would um, cause him to fail the drug test when he went back to rehab. The alcohol would do nothing. They wouldn't be able to detect that, but the marijuana would definitely show up. He wanted to come home. He was tired of being away from home. He came home, and he did He did well for a while. Um, a friend of his had suggested to use heroin that summer, and Jesse actually became physically violent with him because he was so against Going back to that, um, I was told he was uh, using some painkillers over the summer. And then in August, he had, he was living, he, I'm sorry, let me go back to July. He turned 19 in July. He got a really good job with his dad working on a government contract and construction. Very well paid. Um, And he was staying with his dad during the week, and he would come home on the weekend sometimes if he wasn't too busy with his friends. And he was getting really thin. And um, when he was down in Asheville, North Carolina, they had um, got him to open up a bank account. Um, They were trying to teach him some responsibility with his um, money and grocery shopping and things like that. And um, we had used my email address, and I started getting emails about non-sufficient funds. Um, I guess he had forgotten that. I would receive the notifications on his account. And I contacted him and said, hey, you know, what's going on? You're, the bank is saying you, you have non-sufficient funds. And he's, you know, was, of course, was really ang- angry that I was getting the notifications. But the just the dread, the fear, it just came back to me. And I knew. Um, he had a $150 a day habit, painkillers. Percocet is what he told me that he preferred. And I spoke to him on Wednesday, the 18th, that would have been. And he told me that he wanted to go back to rehab, that he couldn't stop using painkillers, and that he was out of control. And I told him that this time he would have to do it himself. So he contacted the insurance company. He contacted the rehab facility. He got in. He paid for his plane ticket. And he was set to go on Sunday. Before heading back to rehab, 
Jesse spent one last night with his friends. They had planned to get together. There was a lot of people at the house that night. Um, a lot of partying going on. Dennis um, admitted that he had asked Jesse to get some heroin. He, he had been, Dennis was dope sick, and Jesse said, no, I'm going to stick with my pain pills. I'm picking them up at 6 o'clock. And Dennis said, I can't wait until 6 o'clock. I'm very sick. And Jesse said, okay, then let's, let's get some heroin. They went to my mother's house and um, took some of her needles. Um, she's insulin dependent diabetic. And then they went to pick up the heroin. Um, I know they power washed Dennis's mom's house. And he was getting sick on the roof of that house. Um, so I know they had used by that afternoon. I spoke to him on the phone. Um, got his plane ticket and he was at his grandmother's house. I was glad he had gone there to talk to her. You know, of course he told me it was so that he could tell her goodbye before he left for rehab. And then they, they went on with the evening and some people said they saw him, you know, about 2 AM and he was sitting on the kitchen counter and really nodding out. And a group of them had seen him using heroin asking him if he was okay and he kept telling him he was going to be fine and other people were using it and everyone had gone to bed that night of the 20th and on the 21st I was told that he got up and um, was looking for the rest of his heroin I guess it had been they would hide it in the sister's bedroom so the kids couldn't get to it so he had to go outside and go through a window to get into that, that room because it was locked from the inside. And he came back in and evidently he had it. He told um, the one girl that he had a headache. He was going to lay back down. And they found him in there not too long after that in the bathroom. My ex-husband, Jesse's father, called me and he told me. And he just flat out said he's gone and... I, I didn't understand. I, I told him he was lying. I mean, I went through all the emotions and finally realized he was telling the truth. I had no idea who, what happened. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get it into my brain. I, I knew he was gone, but I didn't, I didn't get that he had passed away from a heroin overdose. I just couldn't get that in my head. Yeah. I don't know what I thought it was, but I could not get that in my head. When the toxicology report came back, it revealed what Christy and her family knew in their hearts all along. They did the toxicology after that, you know, that didn't come back until January, but he passed from his autopsy report actually says adverse effects of heroin. There was no fentanyl, no alcohol. There was very strong heroin. Dennis actually referred to it, to it as fire. Um, I guess that's what they call really strong heroin. I don't want to call it good heroin, strong heroin. In the very early months, the way I coped was talking to other mothers on Facebook that have gone through the same thing. Grasp is a very good um, site, um, organization. It's grief recovery after a substance passing is what it stands for. Um, and I met a lot of still good friends on that site. And we compared notes and we talked and we messaged and we, that's just how I got through it. And 
I educated myself and just thought, oh my gosh, I, I just didn't know. If I had known, I would have saw this sign. I would have known this. I, I could have done this. Or I just, I wanted to get that information out there. We conclude our series with some final comments from Beth Macy. In the communities I'm writing about, it just seems like no community is immune from this. And that's one of the reasons I tell the story through Hidden Valley, this wealthy suburb near here. Um, that as as one mother said, it was like a dementor from Harry Potter descended upon a hidden valley and said, I want you, I want you, I want you. And everybody was sort of shocked, right? So there's no place where I haven't seen this problem occurring um, in my region, all different kinds of communities. I think the book shows that really well, but I, I would, would argue that in Appalachia, which is has been the most harmed by technology and globalization and you know, lack of economic, um, you know, ability to move up out of your social class, and um, you know, uh, an attitude where one one child says to his teacher, "I want to be a drawer when I grow up." Not an artist, but somebody who draws. Social security disability. You know, I think that's where the problems are worse. And what I'd love to see the drug companies do is, um, you know, there's all these lawsuits out there now, and the multi-district litigation that you and I've talked about before being um, presided over by the Cleveland judge. I know he needs judge bolster. Yeah. uh, Yeah, that's right where you live. And um, I know he means to make uh, some meaningful treatments available, unlike the 07 um, settlement, which went to law enforcement only. Right. Um, I think that'd be a great thing, but I would love to see these regions of the country that were hardest hit, which are still, suffering so badly. When I go out and I talk about the book in Cleveland, where you live, or Pittsburgh, or some other city, people just, you know, I get like these good reader crowds, concerned citizens, and you know, people are kind of shocked by some of what I say. When I go to Appalachia and I tell these stories, they look at me like, oh, it's even worse than that. You know, they've been dealing with it longer than anyone. Um, they are the canaries in the coal mine. And um, I think you've I think we've got to start um, giving them more help in terms of getting access to harm reduction measures and um, really good, solid treatment. Well, Beth, I want to thank you today. We've covered so much ground and really appreciate your time and uh, your insight into the opioid epidemic from years of study. What final words would you like to leave our listeners with? Oh, gosh. Um, Just that, you know, there is hope out there. I'm so encouraged by the people I see, um, like Janine, like Patricia, Tessa's mom, who's going out there becoming activists. Um, I'm really encouraged when I see maybe uh, people who weren't so sure about medication-assisted treatment really dig into the data and kind of open their hearts and minds to it. Um, a lot of, There's a lot of stigma out there still about MAT. And um, it's really heartening when a community or a person or a group of people really um, read the research out there and realize that we've got to meet um, people with opioid use disorder where they're at. Um, And maybe that means giving them clean needles and giving them uh, treatment and testing for hepatitis C and things of that nature. Um, But there's still a lot of education that needs to be done. in terms of bringing harm reduction and uh, MAT to the wider community. Um, so I'm hopeful that, you know, the book will inspire people to care and um, 
to educate themselves and their families about this. And so I really appreciate your work and the way you have um, made this your, your life's work. It's, it's, it's really amazing. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this five-part series on Dopesick, the dealers, doctors, and the drug company that addicted America by New York Times writer and best-selling author Beth Macy. Join us again next time for more of the people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.